Hi everyone, welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Jonah, and today returning as my co-host is Camden Martin, because um, Mariana is busy doing family stuff um, around Thanksgiving. So welcome Camden, thanks for coming back and talking animals with me because that's what we do best of course you know, i was so happy to uh her you know asking to help out i'm so happy to be back with you guys um yeah thank you for having me um so what's new with you well i think the last time we spoke it was back in july so since then i do have uh i've got two new jobs but uh the most interesting one at this point is i work for a company called entosense which is right local here in Maine, and it's a company that sells edible insects, but like um, a huge variety of edible insects because they're the only company in North America that has an exportation and importation license. So we have all kinds of insects coming in from Thailand and China, so like Manchurian scorpions and tarantulas. and oh, it's, First of all, they're delicious, and it's really cool to work in that environment. At work, we have, a, we have actually pet insects. There's two Thai black forest scorpions that we can feed crickets to. And then we also have a tarantula named uh, Terry. So it's kind of cool at work when you get to go and hang out with crickets and cockroaches. And, and then you also get to, uh, you know, make sales and whatnot. That's pretty cool. And munch on them. Exactly. Yeah. I've got a bag of uh, Chapalina grasshoppers out back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, we keep talking about this and it's like making me hungry for them. Um, did... All these, all these ones that come from around the world, they're like captive bred, right? Yes, this is correct. So it's not to, you know, they're all captive bred, so they, you know they're not hindering any populations, like local populations or wildlife, uh, wild populations. Yeah. They're all uh, raised, um, and then we buy them, and then we process them and whatnot, and then we sell all over the United States and the world. But a lot of times to like um, a lot of chefs, uh, different restaurants, uh, museums. Uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not is actually a customer, and so it's pretty neat. It's uh, it's evolving. It's a pretty neat environment to work in. It's really small, um, but it's just neat to see all these different species of insects, and you know, also kind of preaching that the importance of eating insects, how that's really good for the environment, because you know, um, they uh, how can I say that? There's no, there's not a lot of loss of bioaccumulation, uh, biomass, because um, you know, it takes a little bit of a little bit of water, a little bit of uh, feed to, you know, create a pound of insects. And then compared to if you had a pound of beef, whereas um, they both compare uh, in vitamins and protein. And usually the crickets will actually even be crickets, for example, are usually more in protein and have other vitamins that you can't find in other places such as B12 and whatnot. So and it's actually interesting for vegans and vegetarians because it's they're much more ethically um, taken care of and you know they're not they kind of they get f frozen so they're kind of going to a hibernation state before they pass away so it's it's really interesting and it's a cool place to work for yeah that sounds really cool i'm interested in that i would yeah it is it's just so sustainable and people like people think it's well a lot of people like would cringe at that and think it's so weird but it's like this is what people right. have been doing forever forever <laughs> exactly it's just you know in the, in the west we've kind of forgotten that and it's the biggest thing that biggest challenge that we face is really that psychological barrier because otherwise it's the best thing one of the best things out there for you really yeah so what else what's new with you um uh busy at the end of the semester have 2 weeks of school left so i've been grading um papers which is 
exhausting having to grade like <laughs> 30 to 40 college freshman sure. scientific papers. Um, and I just actually, because we had, um, well, be- because we didn't have, because of Thanksgiving last week, so we didn't have, I didn't have a work meeting on Monday, so I took a long weekend and I went down to the Texas coast and did some kayaking and a lot of birding oh, that's cool. in the coastal wetlands there. And then I did some bird banding with um, some other bird people. Um, we were specifically catching sedrens, which was really exciting because very few people get to hold a sedren in their hands. Um, this is true. And uh, Let alone people that know what a sedren is, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, the one guy who he's a biologist up at, um, Fort Hood military installation. Um, he's taught me bird banding and he's been doing this project for a couple of years trying to get better information about how to age sedrens. Um, so we were going down and specifically targeting them, you know, walking in a line, trying to scare them up from the grass and scare them into a net. Um, and then, but then we also caught like Lacan sparrows, which was the first time I'd ever seen those. Got to catch and band um nelson sparrows so really really cool birds that people don't hardly barely ever get to see but also rarely get to hold and and band um and then the birds down there it's just like the place we were staying it's just like the garden of eden there's just like cranes non-stop flying over roseate spoonbills everywhere ibis everywhere i saw one wood stork which is unusual for this time of year um Oh, that's so cool. You're making me so envious. <laughs> it's just like the birds You're on the Maine, coast. Maine, it's all snow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was actually really cold there. Um, I was going to spend a few more days down there, but it was so cold and windy. I also lost my kayak paddle, so I couldn't really do any more kayaking. But anyways, yeah. What's that's... new in the uh, wildlife world? What's going on? Um. Oh, news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, as usual, the news is always depressing. Um, this past week, this was, Mariana actually texted me this article, um, it was the first time I'd seen it, um, in Indonesia, a 30 foot, 31 foot long, um, dead sperm whale washed on the shore, washed up on the shore, and, um, when it was necropsied, it had six kilograms or, um, 13 pounds of plastic in its stomach, including 115 drinking cups, four plastic water bottles, 25 plastic bags, two flip-flops, and then a bunch of other, you know, small... You think they were a pair of flip-flops, or they're two different kinds of (laughs) flip-flops? I was wondering the same thing. Um, (laughs) But I I saw the same article, and I mean, it just... Like you said, kind of depressing as always, but man, that that just hurts so bad. It hurt, you know, when you see that, it just... And they haven't, but, not that know. this makes it any less worse, but they haven't d- determined if it's, it died because of the plastic, ingesting all that plastic. Or that was kind of like an additional thing that was dealing with. Yeah, like it died and it just also happened to have that much in its stomach, which regardless, it doesn't matter because it doesn't right. make it, it less of an issue. With. But this is, I mean, right. if our listeners remember in our plastics episode um, back in July, this is the second time this year that a whale has washed up on the shore with pounds and pounds of plastic in its stomach. The last one was a a pilot whale with 17 pounds of plastic. So a sperm whale is obviously much larger. So the plastic in the sperm whale's stomach was a smaller percentage. 
than in the pilot whale, but still, like, these are just the ones that we know of. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, so it's that's sad. Um, and I, I speaking kept... of plastics, what's the other uh, thing? Oh yeah, the other the other news piece um, is related related to plastics, and I feel like a lot of our news is always going to be related to plastic. One because I'm super passionate about it, but because it's one of the biggest issues that we're facing today. Right. Um, so a study just came out. Um, researchers from the mostly from the University of Exeter. Um, there's a couple others. I don't remember where they're from, but they did a study um, looking at microplastics on the beaches of Cyprus, um, which for those of you that don't know, Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean. So people think of it being like a crystal, beautiful blue water, lovely sandy beaches. Um, But this study sort of painted a darker image of um, Mediterranean beaches. Um, So they sampled 17 beaches where sea turtles nest um, on the northern side of the island of Cyprus, and they collected over a thousand samples of sediment. Um, And when they analyzed it, which was very, very tedious um, and painful, one of the researchers (laughs) said, because they were getting, um, well, I'll just get to that in a second. But anyways, so they collected over a thousand samples, and their samples had an average of 130,000 fragments of plastic per cubic meter which is 3,700 fragments per cubic foot. And that was just on the sand surface of the sand. So they, they, they sampled the surface of the sand, and then they also took, like, cores of the um, sand column as deep as two feet. So in the sand column, they found an average of 5,300 plastic fragments per cubic meter, which is 150 per cubic foot. So obviously a lot more on the sand surface, but there's a lot still in the um, the sand column. And th- they were looking at, um, they were counting up like, you know, um, you know measurable pieces of plastic, uh, pl- piece of plastic you could see, but they're also looking at microplastics, which we talked about in our plastic episode. Um, but in this study, they defined, for their purposes, microplastics as any fragment that was less than five millimeters or um, a fifth of an inch in diameter. So really small particles. Um, they enter the water either by large pieces breaking down as the, those large pieces are sort of being broken down through the as they roll through the currents in the ocean, um, or, which we didn't talk about this in our um, episode on plastics, I don't think. But the second way that microplastics enter the water is um, through industrial plastic production waste. So in a lot of plastic production, they use microbeads called nurdles, which is a horrible word. Right. When <laughs> um, they get, uh, when they get uh, basically they're a bunch of beads and then um, when they heat them up, they kind of create the different plastics that you need, if I'm yeah. not mistaken, right? Yeah, they melt them down. And so they just, obviously, they spill and get out and stuff. Um, but sometimes there's, like, an actual spill, like, where a huge quantity of them accidentally gets dumped. And then that, of course, goes in the waterways. Um, 
So anyways, um, they were looking at microplastics and larger pieces of plastics. Um, but this was really interesting that um, the... Oh, I should also say that um, this is very serious. That the, the results of this study showed that the beaches of northern Cyprus actually have the second highest known amount of microplastics of any beach that's been studied in the world. So that's why I was saying it painted a different picture of these beautiful Mediterranean beaches because that's the last place people think that there's that much plastic. Um, so it holds the now it's the second most highest polluted plastic beach. Yeah, we have those kind of iconic pictures of, you know, the Mediterranean coastline and then, you know, you think it's all picturesque and it's beautiful and we kind of think the plastic's in somewhere like more maybe poorer countries of the world, but, you know, it just goes to show, you know, yeah, like the 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 current record record holder for the highest known amount of microplastics is a beach in um, Guangdong, China, and that's like what you would expect. Like, oh, you know, China and that part of Asia, there's so much plastic there. But um, what the the article was sort of saying is that the way the currents are in the Mediterranean, it's like all of the plastic that goes into the ocean. It's oh, the majority of it's being dumped on Cyprus there, which is why there's so so much there just the way the current pushes all that uh waste um but this study actually um pointed out that this accumulation of plastics especially dark colored plastics um have the potential to impact the sex structure of sea turtle species found in cyprus um which like i said they were testing beaches that sea turtles specifically nested on um, green sea turtles and loggerhead sea, tur- sea turtles both nest on Cyprus. Um, and the reason that they think it could alter the sex structure is because for reptiles, um, the temperature of the nest influences what sex the young are going to hatch as. So higher temperatures in a nest make females, lower temperatures make males. Um, and this is, you know, this has been known and this is, this is common for, um, reptiles if not the case for all reptiles i'm not sure i'm sure there's some exception but you know by having so much plastic and especially dark plastic in the sand and on top it's going to attract it's the heat all that insulation yeah and it's going to make it hotter which is going to mean that there's going to be more females and this skewed sex ratio has actually already been demonstrated um by a study that noah did um, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, they did a study on green sea turtles in northern Australia um, and found that the rising sea temperature or rising um, air temperatures caused a shift in um, the sex ratio, and so there's more females. And so there isn't evidence of this happening on Cyprus yet, but now that they just did this plastic study, now... Um, a bunch of sea turtle researchers are collaborating to do start some experimental work to um, start monitoring this in Cyprus because it's probably going to be an issue because more and more plastic is just going to continue right. to accumulate. It's just there. a matter of time at this point. Yeah, yeah. So that's um, really unfortunate, and that's how our wildlife is faring with plastic these days. Um, so that's that's the news for this episode. Um, 
And I guess actually this is sort of a third piece of news that's going to lead us into our topic for today. Um, Just this past week, the week of Thanksgiving, um, for our American listeners, um, it was funny, I was getting like emails from people not in the United States, like about work stuff or whatever on Thanksgiving. And I was just like, oh yeah, we're the only people that are celebrating. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah, even in Canada, they don't. It's in uh, October, so. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, um, so last week, second to last week of November is what I'm talking about. Um, an article came out highlighting these um, that a bunch of bird species have had their status updated. Um, so BirdLife International, um, which is an organization that's responsible for assess- assessing the conservation status and assigning threat levels to, to bird species, um, this year they revised information for over 2,300 bird species. Um, and it included everything from like just updating text or maps um, on like their information pages about the birds um, to even for a lot of species changing their threat status. So um, 58 species were uplisted, which means that they were given a, a cate- put in a category where they're more threatened than they previously were. So, um, you know, they went from, um, they, they use this. They probably went from near threatened to endangered or endangered yeah. to critically endangered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess for some listeners might not, un- might not know about the IUCN's, um, categories and stuff, but, um, they, they should, maybe you, should, you guys should just look it up cause it's too much to explain here, but basically species are given put in categories based on their threat level. And so 58 of these species basically became more threatened. Um, not that they became more threatened, but we put them in a category of higher threat <laughs> because obviously these are man-made categories. Um, but some of these um, species of the 58, there was actually seven hornbill species that were uplisted. Um, and in one of our poaching episodes, I forget which one, we talked about some hornbill species that are not doing very well. And it's just the demand for ivory. A lot of hornbills, they're like casks and stuff on their head are made of ivory. And so that's why a lot of these species were uplisted. Um, but then 31 species on the bright side were downlisted, which means they were put into they're, a lower, faring better at this point. They were put into a lower threat category. Yeah. Um, so this, some of these included um, the pink pigeon of Mauritius and then Henslow sparrow here in the United States um, and then the northern bald ibis, which is the species we're going to be talking about today. But before we get into that, I just want to kind of go on a little rant about this whole um, status assessment process. So, you know, the the these species that were uplisted or downlisted or whatever, this was done because new scientific information has been made available or through scientific monitoring, they found that the species is declining or that the um, populations are growing or or whatever. So it's science-based. It's supposed to be science-based because they use certain criteria about population size or the geographic distribution or whatever. And then they, you know, 
use the information that's available and put it up against this criteria and decide which category, threat category it's going to go in. Um, but, you know, at the same time that BirdLife International is using the latest science to inform the conservation of, of these species that we were just talking about, they're also doing a ton of assessments with no scientific basis. Um, and this really hits home for me because, and this the reason I want to talk about this is because um, it's the story of my, currently the story of my, story of my life, because the Saddlebill Stork, which I'm trying to start the first ever study on, has never been studied. Well, it has never been studied. So if it's never been studied, then if we don't really have a good understanding of population sizes and its ecology and stuff, then how can you really come up with a an, an accurate and an informed assessment? Right. That makes total sense. Yeah, for sure. And obviously it's you're not going to be able to determine the exact population size and trends of the nearly 10,000 species of birds in the world. Um, And you do have to make certain calls sometimes, but it needs to be informed with the best science. And there is a category, um, you know, instead of putting it in a category, there is a category that is called data deficient, where it basically means we don't have enough information about this to about this species to to come up with a, a status for it, which um, obviously there's so many species we don't know a lot about. So this doesn't just apply to the saddlebull stork, but you know, many years ago when they decided that the saddlebill was least concerned, meaning it's the lowest threat level, um, they did this. It's it's a best guess. I mean, you look at the the website, certain websites that provide this information about the population, and it says that it's a best guess. Um, and yes, there are lots of water bird surveys throughout Africa, but they're not, they're not always standardized and saddlebills can't be surveyed in that way because they occur at low densities and they're not uniformly distributed on the landscape. And, um, so you can't just, you know, incorporate these random non-standardized surveys and say, use that to extrapolate to come up with a, a population size. it's That's just crap science. Um, and so what they've done is they've just taken all the count data basically from Africa and made up a population estimate, which, yeah, there's some count data, but when you look at the data, it's like this year there could be zero C, next year there could be 25, the following year there could be two, then two, then two, then five, then 10. You, that's not giving you an accurate representation of the size or the trend. Right. Mm-hmm because of the way they move, because they occur at low densities. And so you can't use the same methodology to come up with a population estimate. Um, and the, the estimate they came up with is that there could there's, there's 1,000 to 25,000 of these storks, which is a huge range. Um, and it, that's just obviously very imprecise. And... It's also dangerous from a conservation perspective because, okay, what if there are a thousand of them? Then they're probably not least concerned. They're probably more threatened than you think. What if there's 25,000 of them? Okay, then they could be least concerned. But you can't just throw out these random numbers that are completely made up. Like, it's like people were just sitting there. Yeah, that's exactly what they're. It's like people were just sitting there like, well, how many do we think there are? Okay, 
well, I've seen 10 here, so let's just multiply that by 1,000. And it's just like, it's not based in science whatsoever. <laughs> um, and so it, it could be cause, um, you know, it's dangerous because people aren't paying attention to them because they saw, oh, there's, bird life is the authority. They know what they're doing. They're, you know, what they say is gospel. They said that they're least concerned, so we don't need to worry about them. But then, you know, declines in the population are going to be overlooked for a long time because no one's paying attention to them. Right. And because you never had an accurate estimate in the be- in the beginning. Um, and it's just, um, it's ridiculous. And um, what else was I going to say? I'm gonna, I, this, I could just go on about this. I was teaching um, in my biology labs like two weeks ago. I was teaching about estimating populations and I just like went on a huge rant because it's just, it's not based in science and um, it's led because people see that it's least concern. It's like I said, they basically get no attention, which means no one's been interested in studying them. So we don't even know the basic things like, do they move seasonally? Do they migrate we, we don't know anything about them. And it's also, I think it's harmful when you just arbitrarily classify an animal as the lowest level of threat right off the bat because then no one's going to want to ever learn anything about them because, you know, the, the more threatened species, they require more research and they inspire more research because we want to protect them, right? It, that makes sense. We want to protect them and it's, it seems more dire. Yeah, and you want to invest in them rather than investing in some other species that doesn't need help, you know. But we don't know we don't know anything about the saddle. It's not on the verge of extinction, but we don't know like it it doesn't it should not be in least concern. And even the criteria when you look at the criteria that they use, it doesn't match the criteria. It matches the criteria for data deficient. Um and it's just it's maddening cuz especially for me, it makes it harder for me to get funding because then people look at it and they're like, oh, it's it's least concern. Um, why do we want to fund that? And it's just like bird life, they, they make this up. This isn't the first time that they've done this. They do this with thousands of birds because like I said, you can't get precise numbers of all these species, but you shouldn't just arbitrarily put them, arbitrarily put them in a category. And I mean, these are man-made categories and I don't know, humans were just obsessed with putting things in categories to pretend neat and boxed and yeah. And to pretend that we know everything and that's just sheer ignorance, um, to do things that way, you know, and so few species are put in data deficient because we don't want to admit that we don't know stuff. (laughs) No, even the best information for some of these species doesn't give us any useful information. Um, Right. If it's like the person sense. who's too uh, proud to say that they're lost, and so they don't know, they yeah. don't know how to get back home. Exactly, <laughs> and that's how bird life does it. <laughs> um, I mean, bird life does some awesome stuff, but it's just of course, um, right. this is just. I just don't. I think that the most successful and the best con- conservation is based in science. Like that's like my uh, thing that I live by, and it's so frustrating when I'm trying to deal with a species like this. Um, Anyways, right. it's kind of like just doing everything the most easiest possible way. But yeah, so rant over, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's actually get into a topic now that we're almost 30 minutes into this episode. <laughs> um, 
but this shouldn't this shouldn't be too difficult to go over. Um, and we're doing another endangered species just because Mariana was busy and I've been busy at the end of the semester. So um, not that these endangered species episodes are easy, but it's a lot less uh, labor intensive to put together the research to do an episode compared to doing some like broad topic. Um, you know, we just want to give you the facts about species and about their conservation in these episodes. Um, and yeah, I mean, who just doesn't like to learn about straight up, just learn about animals, you know? Right. Um, so diving into today's topic. So, um, so the Northern bald, uh, Ibis, so Adronicus eremita in Latin, um, definitely has received a lot of, uh, scientific attention and conservation through the fact that, you know, it's been having some very precipitous and precarious populations. Um, but you know, uh, through some, you know, recently there's been some new stability that's been proven and demonstrated, um, and with one of the uh, sub uh, subpopulations, so that the um, it's sufficient to downlist it uh, to endangered now, which is that's pretty exciting news, uh, at least for that. Um, so the northern uh, bald ibis is also known as the um, Waldrap uh, ibis, so with a W, um, so of German origin. Um, so it's, a, you know, it's not too big of a bird. It's between one and uh, one and a half kilos, so about two to three pounds. Um, they kind of, um, uh, I was doing some research about them today and, uh, about their names and whatnot in different languages. And uh, I was reading in Arabic, for example, um, they call them Abu Manjal and bec they, uh, because, uh, and why do they call them that is because, uh, the ibis has that kind of, it's naked and a deep red head and the throat that is abruptly uh, feathered on the back of the skull. And it also has like this very long, like typical ibis type long beak and whatnot. And manjel in Arabic is kind of like the uh, scythe, I think we would say. So it's kind of curved and whatnot. So it's kind of a neat way of uh, also, uh, you know, naming the animal I found. Um, so it's mostly black overall with some iridescent green and purple. Um, you know, if anyone's not sure what it is, you know, feel free to go look it up while you're listening to this North, uh, Northern Bald Ibis. Um, yeah, we'll post pictures of it too. It's um, exactly, we've got some videos, some pretty cool stuff to check out. Yeah. I think most people have probably never seen a bird that looks like this. Yeah. It's pretty distinct. Yeah, for sure. Um, so historically, you know, the Northern uh, Bald Ibis is kind of lived, um, throughout the Mediterranean world. Uh, so we're kind of looking North Africa, Middle East, but as well as into central and Southern Europe. So all the way up to the Alps pretty much. And then kind of the Mediterranean, uh, contour of the Northern, uh, shore. So Southern Europe. Uh, but since the beginning of the 20th century, uh, the species has really known some, um, uh, it's known to decline and therefore has even, um, kind of come to, a fork in the road where it's two gen genetically distinct uh, populations and disjunct as well. Um, so one in Morocco, which is really referred as the Western population, and then the one um, that migrates between Syria and Ethiopia, um, so which is obviously the Eastern uh, one. It's even, um, not to go into too much detail, this one in Syria is a much more precarious population, even considered extinct, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, also, there's actually um, a reasonably relatively sizable population in southern Turkey, so just north of Syria. Uh, but these are semi-wild, so therefore they don't have the same status of being a wild population. Um, they, bred outside of, uh, they breed outside of uh, outside cages on ledges and a nest box. 
um, and I believe it's in a breeding compound. Um, and but in late July or early August, um, when nesting is over, uh, they will naturally migrate to Ethiopia. So they kind of, yeah, it's semi-captive circumstances, contexts in which they live. Um, yeah, so they they put them, they bring them in after breeding so that they can't migrate basically so they're like wild truly free flying for like a few months and then they put them back in captivity right it's like yeah exactly um so what else could we say about them um let me think so for example the idea was to increase the population and then experimentally allow them to migrate um instead of being always caged uh for the non-breeding season um but um, mortality and experimental reasons in the civil war in Syria, Syria has, uh, you know, definitely you know, prevented these things from materializing. Um, uh, to give you an example, in 2009, three birds, three birds released from their colony and migrated, uh, via the breeding site of, um, the wild ibis is in, in, uh, next close to Palmyra, uh, in, um, like central west or, uh, eastern Syria. Um, and then, However, they were found dead on their path to uh, Ethiopia and Jordan, so just the next country over. Yeah, and they had they had transmitters. Yeah, yeah. So this is also how they know. And then again, in 2013, a handful of these birds were also released into or were supposed to migrate south, um, and their their transmitters actually end up failing. Um, and so they're they're we don't know what happened with them. They're, you know, their fate is kind of unknown at this point. Uh, but generally speaking, the semi-wild turkey population, you know, not turkeys, but the population in Turkey um, <laughs> is not um, is not considered uh, when assessing the status of the species as a whole. Because like we said, you know, they're, you know, semi-captive. Um, Jonas, I know you did a lot of research and you're kind of excited about this. So if you want to talk about kind of how they were um, perceived in ancient Egyptian culture, I think, take it away. Yeah, so uh, Ibis actually... Ibis several species of ibis show up in um, ancient Egyptian culture, um, including the sacred ibis, which was very commonly found in Egyptian culture and was even like kept, they kept them as pets and in their temples and stuff. But the Nor northern bald ibis, the role that it played was is a little more, um, uh, not mysterious, but it's just, um, there's not solid facts about it. Um, so it, it did play some role in ancient Egyptian culture, um, but the, the hypotheses about it are sort of based on circumstantial evidence is what, I guess what I'm trying to say. But there's this paper that I read by, um, Yannick, I think that's how you say it. Um, it's a paper from 2010 that makes a pretty compelling argument that Ibis, Northern Bald Ibis specifically were viewed as reincarnations of the, the quote unquote blessed dead. Um, of the Egyptians, and he goes into detail about the words that are used for the blessed dead and more about that, but, um, you know, they, they believed in reincarnation, and so they basically thought that the northern bald ibis were their reincarnated dead since they would, since the ibis would migrate into Egypt from the east as they were sort of coming down from, like, Syria or wherever. Um, and he talked about in the paper because the the eastern horizon is associated with the reincarnation of the blessed dead, like that's where they come from, or something like that. Um, and so, so he was saying that they thought when the ibis would 
come from when they're migrating from the east that like oh it's it's the reincarnation um and also because their spring arrival or not their spring arrival when they're um leaving in the fall actually when they're heading back south for the non-breeding season the their arrival coincided with the time of harvest in egypt and so the egyptians may have believed that it was the blessed dead coming from the east to tell them that their crops were ready to harvest um and this also may be one reason why the bald northern bald ibis has never been found buried or mummified in egyptian tombs like other animals like the sacred ibis was frequently that was frequently done and tons of other species but a bald ibis that was never done because they wouldn't do that to their blessed dead um and there's plenty of there's plenty of depictions of that are obviously northern bald ibis um in like stone carvings or ivory carvings um, on tablets, rods, or on tombs or whatever, even in hieroglyphs, um, as hieroglyphs. And you could tell that they're bald ibis because the images or the depictions like show the the long feathers on the base of their neck, the long plumes, um, which is something that's also characteristic of this species. And it's drawn differently than the sacred ibis in their depictions, um, um, and this is really interesting. This kind of historical ecology stuff is, is really cool that this, it, it, some of it's kind of grasping at straws. I think that's the, the saying, um, the but term. don't use, don't use and straws. Th- for those so. who don't remember, historical ecology is like my, my back. I like, I love that. So that's what I'm constantly looking forward. So oh, I'm so happy you found this. Yeah, this is, this is super cool. So. Um, in this paper, he was talking about how the depictions of the bald ibis are very detailed and very accurate um, in earlier Egyptian history. And, you know, as time went on, and this is, again, assuming that all these things have been aged properly, um, all these depictions, but, you know, later depictions of the ibis, they sort of start to show altered and inaccurate features, and even with, like, the coloring and they don't really they don't correspond with how the bird actually looks and they don't correspond with the previous depictions uh, in earlier times. And so the author of this paper points out that the accuracy inaccuracies that developed over time um, may suggest that the artists in later times weren't actually seeing the bald ibis so they weren't familiar with them which is why they might have done more general depictions that weren't didn't have like the real features of the northern bald ibis um so and then he said you know like other animals that are depicted in throughout this same time period they don't change um like the sacred ibis or or whatever animal you're talking about the depictions don't change because he said because those animals were still there they were still being observed by the egyptians and so why did the, the depictions of the nor- northern bald ibis change? Um, well, this suggests that there was a population decline beginning as early in in, in Egypt as early as um, the third millennium BC, so three thousand years BC. Um, and he related this very interestingly to at that time uh, in the third millennium BC, there was some climatic changes occurring in Egypt. Um, that 
led to decreases in rainfall and very significant changes in the habitat of the Nile River and its margins, um, just as the, the land of Egypt generally just became more desiccated, became more dry, basically. Um, and at the same time, Egypt was experiencing some pretty major developmental changes, um, like all the building of the large-scale... Um, you, uh, you know, the irrigation definitely paid a part uh, for yeah, the crops yeah. along the river. Yeah, agriculture becoming... Large-scale agriculture becoming a big thing. Um, construction of, like, the huge stone monuments, like the pyramids. Um, so this sort of... Hu- major human activity in addition to the climate changes um, made Egypt less suitable for bald ibis, which is probably why they weren't showing up there anymore. They probably just found some other migratory route or whatever. But that's probably why the ancient Egyptian artists were sort of starting to depict them more inaccurately. Um, so that's that's pretty interesting. Um and I guess we should have said this. We should have said this earlier, that it's called the northern bald ibis because there's also a species called the southern bald ibis, um, Geronicus calvus, which is only found in South Africa. It it has a very small range. It's not endangered. It's considered vulnerable, um, but they, they're sort of similar looking. They they definitely have some distinct differences. Um, I got to see one or two when I was in South Africa, which was pretty special because. They're only found there, and there's really not that many of them. That is pretty cool. Um, okay, do you want to tell us a little bit about their life history, like habitat and diet? Yeah, sure. Um, so, in general, um, you know, uh, we can say that uh, northern bald ibises, you know, during the breeding season, for example, are found um, in colonies along, you know, rocky outcropping, so cliffs, escarpments, uh, definitely in remote air areas, so, you know, away from human contact for the most part, often close to coasts and waterways, uh, so less likely accessible to humans to be, you know, being bothered by them. Interestingly enough, which I think is so cool, uh, historically, um, you know, uh, for example, northern bald ibises would occupy castles and ruins and different kinds of walls, uh, you know, like ruin walls and whatnot, and were even, there were even uh, nest sites um, in cities. So we can kind of think of like, um, you know, storks and whatnot in Europe, we can kind of see their big nests on some places in, you know, historical buildings in Europe. So it's kind of similar to that, uh, which is pretty neat. Um, you know, it would just be kind of cool to be, you know, thinking that you're living close to this castle and that there's a, a breeding pair of northern bald ibises nearby. That's, I just think that's really neat. Um, so, uh, so in regards to the two existing populations, um, Moroccan birds, uh, usually tend to nest on sea cliffs, whereas, uh, the Syrian, uh, population kind of uses, cause they're further away from the coast, um, they're using like you know different uh, limestone rock faces, um, so these are once again very inaccessible. Uh, during the non-breeding season, ibises are usually found uh, in the mountain meadows, agricultural fields. Uh, we also can think of you know rocky areas, uh, damp areas on high plateaus. Um, so it definitely tends to prefer areas with little vegetation. It likes to avoid uh, fields and pastures where you know the grass is getting more than uh, twenty-seven centimeters. Um, so we're, you know, a little bit under a foot. 
Um, in the eastern population, uh, ibis was, will migrate to the Ethiopian highlands and during the non-breeding season feed in grasslands and wet meadows along streams and lakes as well, up to about 3,500 meters. So over about almost like 1,000 feet, um, which is interesting. Oh, I was just thinking about 11,000 we feet. So basically, what did I say? 11,000 meters? Yeah, you said 1,000 feet. <laughs> oh, whoops, my bad. Yeah, 11,000 feet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's an extra one in there. Um, well, I was just thinking about this. So basically, the, the Syrian population kind of follows that Great Rift Valley fault line all the way from Syria, well, Jordan, really, all the way down to Ethiopia, which is pretty cool. So Red Sea all the way into, you know, over Djibouti into Ethiopia. So that, I think that's pretty neat. Um, so yeah, on their migration, I think, uh, there's been sightings, uh, in Jordan, there's been sightings in Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Um, and then I think there's also been, you know, sightings on the, so on the other side of the Red Sea and, you know, Egypt, like Southern Egypt, not by the Nile at all. Uh, and then kind of falling its way to Eritrea in this area. But I mean, that's very rare and sporadic. Um, what else was going to say? Uh, so in terms of. Uh, we don't know that much about their habitat use uh, during migration. Um, you know, there's been satellite tracking, and this has revealed that uh, you know, some active cultivation uh, fields are used as places to feed and whatnot. Um, so in, in terms of uh, diet, um, northern bald ibises generally feed on pretty much any animal alive. They're pretty, you know, open-minded. <laughs> um, this is includes... <laughs> They're open-minded. They're not like pandas. They don't limit themselves. <laughs> I believe that's called a generalist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Generalist, open-minded. Yes. That's funny. The term was not coming to my mind, so I had to think on my feet. Um, so, you know, this includes, you know, definitely insects, um, you know, spiders, scorpions, um, you know, all kinds of different vertebrates, worms, snails, but as well as uh, fish, uh, different amphibians, lizards, snakes, and other you know small rodents and sometimes small birds um, can also uh, feed on vegetative matter, so such as berries, uh, shoots, and some aquatic plants. Um, you know they feed by walking uh, quickly, and uh, they pro they will tend to probe um, soft you know soft substrates, uh, looking for food. Uh, in Syria, the feeding habit uh, habitat is very degraded. You know this is an area that's been heavily you know, this is part of the Fertile Crescent, Syria. So, you know, it's been just like Egypt. It's been, you know, populated for a long, long time. Um, and then, you know, overuse of agriculture and whatnot has definitely degraded the landscape. Um, so they will, it's been noted that they kind of rely on uh, temporary and sporadic abundances of young toads and artificial reservoirs for water. And I was doing some research about that. And I actually saw a picture like at dusk of uh, Northern Bald Ibis kind of like stalking uh, toads. Actually, it's one of the links, actually, if you'll find it, come across it, it, and they're kind of stalking toads, um, which is pretty neat. Um, I also saw that um, for the uh, National Park in Sousmessa, so the Parc National de Sousmessa, um, uh, they, they particularly are kind of fond of agama lizards. They like to, that comprises a big part of their diet. Um, in the breeding season, they can feed as far as 26 kilometers from their nesting site. Um this is because the uh, structure requirement of their habitat is very specific. So, um, you know, you can conduce that you can deduce that changes um, will lead to uh, quick abandonment, uh, abandonment of feeding, and then feeding areas, and then um, and therefore even nesting sites. 
This is actually one reason uh, why the existing population actually uses remote and undisturbed areas and um, consistently shows high site fidelity because, you know, you find that right spot, you gotta, you gotta stay there. Um, so, I mean, I'll, I think, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about Syria, for example. Actually, well, that's right, I wanted to say. So, um, really interesting. So, records of eastern po uh, population of uh, northern Bald Ibis. Um, back in the 19th century, there was a pop uh, population of thousands of Ibis at that point, which is, I can't imagine seeing a... It'd be so neat, you know, just to see a giant flock, you know, of, of uh, northern Bald Ibis soaring in the air. That would be pretty neat. Um, so the wild population of Turkey was estimated back in 1930 at like, I think it was 3000 and then progressively diminishing. So 400, 1982, and then even up to five pairs, 1986, and then just one left in 1989. So, which is crazy. Um, and then in 1992, the colony was declared as extinct. And it was after this that the uh, semi-wild population was established in a place called, um, I think it's pronounced Birishik. But I'm not sure about that. Don't you know my Turkish isn't that good. Uh, the rapid decline was um, definitely because of the use of pesticides and you know general habitat abandonment due to human disturbance. Like going back to the fact that it's you know an area that's pretty populated. Um, hunting in Syria along the migratory path into uh, you know the Arabian Peninsula was also a big deal. Um, interestingly enough, back in 2002, a relic colony of about seven ibises uh, was discovered in Syria. Um, and this was, and then between 2007 and 2000 and, uh, 2000, sorry, 2002 and 2007, about 24 chicks were successfully fledged from these migratory pairs. And, um, but unfortunately only, uh, five returned into the breed in breeding season. Uh, then moving forward, uh, in 2008 and 2009, um, no chicks, chicks were successfully raised, um, probably due to predation and uh, low rainfall. You know, these are arid areas. Um, and like, you know, going back to the, you know, artificial reservoirs was kind of their hope of, you know, feeding off toads. So if you're not getting a lot of rainfall, you're not getting a lot of amphibian activity and whatnot. So, um, interestingly enough, I was reading a lot of reports about from the FAO, from the United Nations and, uh, the, there was a huge push in the mid two thousands to kind of restore the uh, the Syrian steppe. So doing studies about, of course, um, the Northern Bald Ibis, but also uh, there were steps made to reintroduce the, I was reading those, re those steps to reintroduce the Arabian Oryx, uh, goitered gazelle in the area. And there was this huge step to like make it more abundant in uh, flora matter and whatnot. And this was all climaxing until, and then right at the beginning, and, uh, and then it obviously stopped right in the beginning of the Syrian uh, civil war, which has put a huge damper on all of those uh, activities, which is really, really sad. Um, and that's also made it more difficult to go and try to find, you know, if there's any populations. Um, it was actually found that during that period, um, through with the, the help of satellite tracking, um, uh, it was seen that um, the Syrian ibis um, were migrating through Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and then Yemen, like I said, Eritrea, and then even to Sudan, Sudan and then Ethiopia. Uh, between the Palmyra population in Ethiopia. Um, but, you know, like I said, kind of hitting the, the peak of the, the civil war in Syria, 2013-2014, only one adult female returned to Syria, and then none has been seen since 2015. Um, so, now at this point, it's, you know, pretty much assumed that the population is extinct. So that's really, really sad news. Um, yeah, it's it was like, 
in 2002, oh my gosh, yes, there's some left. And then yeah. 15 years later, there's none left. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, Which is, you know, a horrible trend that happens all the time, but... Yeah. Um, but they were putting, like, so much effort in. But when you're down to those kind of numbers, there's really not much you can do. Yeah. You know, because one little event could wipe out the whole population. Um, yeah, so... Okay, so the the Syrian population most likely extinct. Um, the Western population in Morocco is doing pretty well. Um, it experienced also experienced sharp declines in the 20th century um, throughout the the Western part of the population. Um, and actually, the last breeding colony in Algeria disappeared in the late 1980s. Um, but they still remained in Morocco. Um, so in 1940 in Morocco, there were about 38 colonies. Then that dropped to 15 colonies in 1975, and then just to three colonies in 1989. Um, and just like in Syria, it was a combination of human disturbance, hunting, um, and exposure to pesticides has been a big issue for these birds and actually I, I think you said that that um that might have been something that killed some of the the birds that were being satellite tracked because they're feeding in agriculture areas and so they're ingesting these pesticides when they eat insects or, or whatever um um okay so the there was three colonies left in 1989. Then in 1981, they actually specifically established Sus Masa National Park um, to protect ibis habitat. And that has been this, like sort of the stronghold for the species since then. Um, in 1995, the estimate for the Moroccan population was about 300 birds between two different colonies, which is there's Currently, there's only two colonies, um, one in the national park and one in another place um, called Tomri. And so there was 300 in 1985, but then the total population declined to 118 in 1998. Um, so again, like you have these small populations and they can just go up and down because they're so sensitive to certain things. Um, but since then, the population in Morocco has increased to about 580 individuals, um, and the most recent number I could find was 580 from the 2015 breeding season. Um, and the the Sous Massa National Park population has been increasing since 1999, and they're really the reason that the whole population of in Morocco has increased because at the Tomri colony, they've sort of experienced some breeding failure and they've kind of gone up and down. But this, the success of the colonies in Morocco is why this Northern bald ibis was just recently downlisted from critically endangered to endangered because it's remained pretty stable and it's increasing. So it's kind of, um, it seems kind of silly, like, why isn't a species that has, you know, 600 birds left considered critically endangered when 
There's some other species of animal where there's 600 left. It's con- it's considered critically endangered. They're using different criteria, um, and it could be a different combination of criteria or whatever. And the fact that this population has been stable and in- increasing is why it's been downlisted in- to endangered. It's not just the number. The number is incorporated into the assessment, but it's not just if it's between this number and this number, it's going to be endangered. It's a lot more complex than that when they're assessing populations. Um, uh, And actually in Morocco, the successful breeding of both colonies has sort of created optimism for dispersing juveniles to recolonize areas where the species formerly occurred historically. Um, And this has actually already been observed in a few places, um, which we, I guess we didn't say this, we're kind of jumping around with some of this information, but um, Camden covered how the the Syrian population is migratory, or was, between Syria and Ethiopia. Um, In Morocco, they're actually not migratory. Um, However, juveniles disperse across long distances, which is what helps to facilitate recolonization. So the more this population grows, the more juveniles are going to disperse out and start to recolonize areas of the historic range, which is always like, which is super cool to, to see that happening. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure why certain populations are migratory and certain aren't. Obviously it depends on the availability of food and stuff, but a historical record suggests that colonies just North of Morocco and in Algeria were more migratory than the current Moroccan population. Um, which is interesting. And the ones from northern north of Morocco and in Algeria would migrate and spend the non-breeding season in, um, in like Mali um, or Mauritania, which is interesting. I, I guess just there's very specific differences in the small regions that they occurred, um, whereas the ones in Morocco, they, they don't migrate now. I guess the habitat is just good enough quality. Um so, again, sort of jumping around, um, we keep talking about colonies, and that's because they breeding colonies like we've been talking about. Um, and they, they're generally monogamous, which means that they um, are mating with the same mate. Um, but this isn't, this isn't always true. Um, a lot of times this, in birds, this can be mono, mean monogamous for that breeding season. So... You know, at the beginning of the breeding season, they they develop a partnership and they don't breed with anyone else. But then the following year, they might breed with a different individual or they could breed with the same individual. Um, And so both the male and female participate in building the nest on these cliffs and um, rock ledges um, out of sticks. And they both are involved in raising the young. Um, They normally lay or they can lay up to four eggs, which are sort of like a greenish color, which is kind of cool. I'd like to see an egg because I wouldn't really imagine them being like greenish. Um, and they're about the size of a chicken's egg. And they, they sort of, um, they lay their eggs. They don't lay all the eggs at once. So they do it sort of in like a ranked order um, in like an interval of one to three days. So that means that one chick is hatching before the others. And this 
sort of allows them to not all be the same age. So they're not all competing at the same level. Um, you know, they're each, they have different requirements. They have different requirements at different ages. So by, by staggering the time they lay the eggs, they're, the idea is that they can increase the survival because they're not all competing for the same food at, at the one same time. time. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and they become they fully fledge, which means they leave the nest and fly at about 42 to 50 days. Um, and then they join their parents as they're, you know, foraging and stuff. And then they'll later they'll join, often join other young birds um, and form groups. And then as they're getting, as for populations that do migrate or would migrate, they would sort of join up um, before migration with adults that have migrated before um, so that they could follow them to the, the wintering area. So this is a really interesting thing in birds, in migratory birds. You know, there's some species where they they fledge and they go out on their own and they just know how to do everything. They know how to, they know where to migrate, which is crazy with like passerine songbirds. They, they migrate individually. And so, you know, a, you know, whatever a Baltimore Oriole becomes independent and it just knows where to migrate. Like, how is that, how is that possible? Whereas in a lot of larger birds, um, you know, I'm sure someone has dis- has looked into like the patterns of this, but just from the examples I could think of, it seems like it's larger birds where the bird, the young birds know they have to migrate. They just don't know where. And that's why they group up with adults so that they can learn the migratory path. So there, there is some instinct, you know, in- instinct, instinct. Yeah. yeah, that they know, okay, I need to get moving, but I don't know where. So that's why they um, group up with adults. Um which is just super interesting, um, those differences. Um, okay, so do you want to talk to us about the efforts in Europe? Yeah, by all means. So, you know, we've been talking about these two distinct populations, um, and that's the case, really. Um, you know, you also have to know that uh, there's, you know, several populations of northern bald ibises, you know, ibises across the world in different zoos, and they have been playing a part in possible reintroduction, eff- well, actual actual reintro- reintroduction efforts in Europe. Um, so, as we alluded, uh, you know, as we had mentioned earlier, um, you know, northern bald ibises had you know occurred naturally in southern Europe as well as central Europe, you know, in the Alps uh, especially. Um, so, there's the um, Scharnstein project, which is in Austria, and it's a reintroduction uh, reintroduction project that dates back to t- about 2002. That's like a miracle year for. Uh, I've been, you know, noticing for northern ibises, you know, two thousand two for this, two thousand two for finding them in Syria. It's like, what was going on in that year? You know, pretty cool. Yeah, Anyways, yeah. Um, so you know, Austria being one of the, uh, you know, uh, considered, an, you know, an Alp region of Central Europe, was home uh, to the northern bald ibis. In fact, I, I was reading on this; and it was pretty cool. And there's actually all kinds of uh, old uh, documents uh, with drawn, you know, hand drawn. Um, uh, northern uh, bald ibises. Uh, so, 
Austria was actually one of the first places historically where the northern bald ibis received its uh, like a, a primitive form of protection under a royal decree back in 1504, uh, actually in Salzburg, Austria. I think it was the archbishop or something like Archbishop Leonard of Salzburg that came up, you know, like, we need to protect this bird. But yeah, uh, and at that time, efforts to protect at that time in the 1500s is when they sort of went extinct in Europe generally. So they must have been realizing that they the they were declining back then. Exactly. Yeah, um, I think the last known presence of northern bald ibises in Europe was dates back to the 17th century. But they, like you said, they're already starting to dwindle back in the 1500s for someone to make a decree. Um, you know, so yeah, they did. They went extinct. Um, but so it may, it's, it's interesting and kind of ironic. So, you know, therefore, um, the, the first reintroduction attempt in Europe was actually in the last place where they were seen, um, which makes, you know, a lot of sense. Uh, the project is composed of a few sites. So, uh, Scharnstein, you know, where the project gets its name, uh, Grunau and Kuchel, uh, which are all in Austria. Um, so I think it goes that 11 birds were initially taken from the Vienna Zoo in order to reestablish, um, you know, a, a new population and let alone a migratory population. Uh, 2003, um, it's actually pretty interesting. I saw the, a little short video clip, you know, showing this, but in 2003, they used like lightweight planes, um, to kind of instruct young birds where to migrate and how to, uh, because since there was no other adults to show them, they kind of took that role as adults and they, they kind of draped themselves in black clothing and had little helmets on their heads that looked like, uh, adult Northern Ball Ibises, which is pretty cool. Uh, but unfortunately, um, the first attempt was not successful due to like a lot of inclement weather and whatnot. It was too difficult. And it wasn't until the following few years uh, that with the help of additional releases um, and on those sites from different zoos um, that they were actually able to make a migration from Austria to Tuscany, so in, um, in Italy. And um, in 2011, a female northern bald ibis named Amelia um, it was actually have known, you know, with the help of a satellite tracker, was known to have flown 930 kilometers, so about 580 miles back and forth between Austria and Tuscany. So that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, so she returned. She went to Tuscany and wintered, and then she returned back to the breeding area in Austria, which was like a major thing. That's a huge success. You know, it's it's just it's it's just I can't imagine being on the receiving end of you know seeing her come back. That must have been something amazing. Um, there's also um, a colony or two established in Germany, and the total European population is about 119 individuals as of 2019. Um, you know, going into the 2019 year. Um, interestingly enough, there's also a there's been an ongoing project um, in uh, southern Spain. So there's the El Proyecto um, Ermita, uh, which is a of course a Spanish reintroduction program that began in 2004. Interestingly enough, not 2002. Huh, I wonder what that's all about. But anyways, um, and this had aims to not only create a population, but also to kind of experiment raising juvenile birds uh, from the European Endangered Species Program, so coming from zoo uh, stock. Um, and so it was really aiming to teach the newborn, you know, juveniles, you know, the necessary life skills uh, for their survival. So yet again, they were all dressed up as uh, northern bald ibises, and they really, um, you know, made sure that they weren't in too much contact with humans, and they're kind of showing them how to feed, and you know, all these kinds of, you know, things that uh, happened for other birds. Um, so they were raised in uh, La Yanda district, so on the western 
southwestern uh, part of Spain, so in the region of Andalusia. Uh, it was decided that there was a sufficient population and that the experimental raising had been successful enough to reestablish the Spanish population with nine breeding pairs. This continued in 2012 with uh, 10, uh, 15 in 2013, and then 23 breeding pairs in 2014, uh, which um, after the breeding season was raised up to 25 um, with... Uh, actually, no, was increased um, up to... Uh, 48 with an additional 25 chicks that you know have, were born that year back in 2014. Since then, uh, the total population of the colony um, uh, has been up to 78 birds and is split into two colonies, originating um, so originally along the cliffs of the Atlantic coast, and then in 2012 with a second colony of five to six breeding pairs um, on like uh, cliff face. Um, on a cliff, uh, like off the coast, I believe, on an island, and um, next to a place called La Berca de Vija. Um, so these are now a small, non-migratory breeding uh, population that has been established in Spain. And so I was reading, I was doing some research, and so as of like October, November, now we're talking about a European population, whereas really before it's always been a, a Western Moroccan uh population and a eastern syrian population so it's kind of interesting to see how they're kind of including this population in europe and um i just was watching a documentary in spanish today uh like a 23 minute and they were talking like you know they were observing the population and they're doing really quite well and so that's going to be interesting to see how they're going to disperse and whatnot but so that's pretty good news it's pretty exciting stuff because you know they were really close to going extinct yeah it's good when they're for a species in this kind of situation to have a handful of these subpopulations in different places. I mean, obviously it'd be nice if they're connected. Hopefully eventually they will be. Um, but you know, cause if something happens to one of the populations, like in Syria, you still have these other ones that right. sort of provide hope or, or whatever. Um, and you're also kind of creating these different genetic pools too, which is pretty neat over time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there's, um, well, speaking of that, there's actually over a thousand northern bald ibis um, in captivity that have genetics from the western population, um, but there's only a couple dozen ibis from the eastern population found in a few Turkish zoos. Um, so... D Again, like the basically the genetic stock for the eastern population is is super rare, and it's also now extinct in the wild. Um, but I was actually just at. Um, I'll talk more about my trip to the Dallas Zoo in our next episode with Mariana. But when I was doing some of my stork stuff up there, um, I was getting a tour of all their bird collection, and they have like an amazing bird collection of the Dallas Zoo. But they had northern bald ibis, um, which was really cool to see because I had never seen them before. But then to um, then I saw this news about them being downlisted, and it was just like, oh, well, that's it's a sign. The bald, northern bald ibis, we're going to do an episode on it. Um, but, you know, this is um, obviously because this is such a highly endangered species, this is, it requires very collaborative conservation work. Um, and that has been the case. And when you start reading it about, this species and looking at the literature, there's so many different people involved in this. 
Um, so back in 1999, there was this um, international working group formed of different stakeholders, biologists and stuff from the different regions where the bald ibis um, was found or was previous fi- previously found, I guess, because that's what happened in Austria and Spain. Um, and they, this working group basically was created to sort of coordinate conservation efforts and and the research being done and make sure that it's you know has a scientific basis all the conservation efforts and basically for for everyone to be working together everyone on the same page because everyone wants to be working towards the same goal with recovering this species um and unfortunately all too often that's that's not always the case um yeah, there's working groups in a lot for a lot of species, but everyone always isn't on the same page and working together because it's whatever competitive or everyone has different opinions about things. But uh, that's that's the importance of these kind of working groups is to collaborate. So everyone's sharing information and we're coming up with these plans together and helping to implement the plans together. Um, and actually, in two thousand six, the first species action plan was published which basically outlined goals and plans for the conservation efforts. Um, and then it was actually revised in 2015 with four main objectives to be achieved by 2025, which were to increase reproductive success, to reduce mortality, to establish new colonies, and then to fill key knowledge gaps about their ecology, um, things that might help improve the conservation efforts. Um, yeah, and so obviously this is still an ongoing effort with the reintroductions and the increasing population in Morocco, um, and it's, you know, even though they've been downlisted to endangered, they're still endangered, that doesn't mean that, you know, we can, oh, we can rest easy now, um, it just means that they're doing better than they were, um, so it's going to be cool to see in our lifetimes, how this story develops now that we have this whole side of the story going forward to see um, how the species is going to recover. Um, Yeah. So that's the northern bald ibis. I know. Pretty cool stuff. So if you haven't looked them up yet during this podcast, go and look them up. Check out the videos. Check out pictures. They're pretty cool. They're pretty charismatic. At least I think they're charismatic looking. Yeah, yeah, I'll put, um, we'll obviously have links in the show notes to some of this information and to their action plan from 2015, um, but then I'll also post the video of the juvenile IBIS following the, um, like, air, lightweight aircraft to train them to migrate. It's pretty cool to see. Um, so today's sustainability tip, um, in light of the growing plastic reform and the recent news that I just shared earlier, um, my latest tip has to do with plastic and how you can easily cut it out of your life, specifically your grocery shopping life, um, because that's where it shows up frequently. Um, so I think... 
it's just so like when you think about it, I I like to approach things logically. Um, and when you really think about it, it is so absurd that people individually wrap their produce in a plastic bag every time they go grocery shopping, right? Like, uh, it's it's kind of asinine, and I'm not like attacking people that do that, but it's just it. I watch people that do it, and it's almost like they're robots. It's mu- muscle memory. It's just like a habit. Um, they put one apple in a plastic bag. Why? Uh, that is the essence of being wasteful, I think. Um, so, it, because it's just super unnecessary, I have a couple alternatives. First one, how about you just don't use bags at all? You just put your produce directly in the cart. I mean, you're going to wash it anyway, so, okay, it gets a little dirty in the cart. Or you can just put it directly in your reusable shopping bag, which... Um, I shouldn't, I think should just goes without saying that you should be using a reusable shopping bag. Um, and that's what I did for a long time. You just put all your produce in the shopping bag. And then when you go to checkout, you just take it all out. Um, and that's why I always, I always do the self checkout because then I don't have to worry about other people doing whatever they want with it. I can just take it out of the bag, put it in my other bag, you know, alternatively, um, you can purchase cloth bags to put your produce in and then this way you can wash the bags if they get too dirty Um, and then you can also use them for bulk food which I'm a huge proponent of buying bulk food because it cuts down on waste in general whether you're buying whatever packages of peanuts or um, garbanzo beans or or, or whatever yeah bulk is best for not like less perishable you know you shouldn't buy like bulk meat because there's a chance you might not eat oh yeah yeah, yeah yeah but you know there's a yeah i just think of my father for example sometimes it's like why did you do that like no we're not gonna eat all that it's gonna go to waste <laughs> ah, don't buy so much why are you buying in such copious amounts i didn't even know those volumes of measure existed <laughs> um yeah no, no i'm talking about like in the bulk food section in a grocery store um, right nuts grains legumes Uh, you know dried fruit um the cloth bags are great for that i like to put it like this you know uh people have been surviving going to market and you know you know collecting food uh you know for thousands of years without plastic so i mean we just need to reinvent how what we've been told that is necessary to do you know you could be putting these in glass jars you could like jonah said put them in um you know uh cloth bags you know there's just a thousand different ways to do it that doesn't have to be plastic involving. So it's just kind of re, kind of like reanalyzing, you know, the things that we do automatically without thinking and say, hey, what can I do to, you know, decrease my impact and whatnot? So yeah, that's the that's the biggest step is just thinking about your actions. People, not even just related to the environment, people just don't do that in general. The way they treat other people and the things they do, thinking about your actions can will will cause you to. That's going to be, that's the first step in changing your actions is recognizing your actions. And like, I don't, uh, I recognize every piece of plastic, every piece of trash that I use because I, I think about it and I, I trained myself to think like that. And, um, it really, I don't know, it just really changed my life and it leads to you being less wasteful in other parts of your life too, like your time or, um, you know, the, your belongings, <laughs> financial, yeah. Belongings is a big one, you know. Um, 
I consider myself somewhat of a minimalist, but <laughs> not as much as I'd like to be, but it, um, it, it's all interrelated when you start thinking about your actions like that. Um, right. For sure. Um, yeah. So in closing, um, well, before we close, I want to give a shout out to, um, one of my favorite podcasts called Herpetological Highlights. Um, Tom and Ben are funny guys that host that podcast about reptiles and amphibians. Um, they cover scientific papers, getting into the nitty-gritty details about studies and on reptiles and amphibians or called herps. Um, and, um, yeah, I just wanted to give a shout-out to them. Listeners should go check them out, see if you like them. If yes, you're they're into really it. good, guys. You, you should really listen to them. They're excellent, really. Yeah, if you like, if you like herps and you like science, um, they're funny and informative, and, um, yeah, they're good, so... They're, they're cool guys. Um, and if you want to listen to more of our podcasts, um, you can find our episodes on our website, conservationchronicles.podbean.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we're also on Facebook and Instagram at Conservation Chronicles. And then you could also email us at conservationchronicles at gmail.com. Um, you know, send us any questions or comments, whether they're good, bad, or ugly, let us know. Um, nothing's off limits. We want to hear from you. Um, yeah, so hope you enjoyed and um, go and listen to some of our other podcasts if you haven't yet. And thanks for Camden. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining Camden. Well, I mean, thanks for having me once again. Look forward to the next time. Mm-hmm.